Are you curious what the idea of co-responsibility for the church's being and acting might mean for both the laity and ordained? Join us for an academic and pastoral conference at Notre Dame this March, March 4th through 6th, to explore this idea further. For more details in a complete list of speakers, visit mcgrath.nd.edu slash co-responsible. Hello and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast by the young, hip, and lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Zach Davis. Hello, Ashley. Hello. It's good to be with you. It's good to be with you. Yeah, good show coming up. Yeah, I think so. What are we What are we drinking? Uh, so we are drinking, well, <laughs> technically a St. Louis beer. Uh, <laughs> so our guest this week is coming to us from St. Louis, and we wanted to honor that by uh, getting maybe some, some forehands or some schlafleys, but... That's really tough to get in New York. Um, so we've uh, lowered ourselves to... Lowered? Well, we're drinking Budweiser. Yeah, it's great. Um, so, Classic beer. Yeah, so cheers to St. <laughs> Louis beers. Mm-hmm. Better ones than the ones we have. <laughs> and who is our guest this week? We are talking to Pete Lucier. He is a Marine veteran and a first-year law student at St. Louis University. Um, and he's written for America and other publications about his experience as a Marine and more specifically about what it's like to come back and kind of talk to people in the civilian population about that experience. Yeah, so he deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. And we figured this would be a good time, we mentioned on SOTs, uh, sort of our feelings and anxieties about sort of a potential lead up to war with Iran. And so we thought it might be a good time to talk to Pete about what his take on this is and what he thinks uh, all of us veterans and not uh, are called to do in these discussions. Yeah, it's a great conversation. So stick around for that. But first, it's time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? This past weekend, Pope Francis commemorated the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Nazi death camp by saying that he will never grow tired of condemning every form of anti-Semitism. Right. This is coming on the eve of the 75th anniversary of the liberation of of that death camp. Um, And he was speaking to a delegation from the Simon Wiesenthal Center, which is a human rights group that researches the Holocaust. Um, and he talked about the importance of, of that research and keeping the memory of the Holocaust alive, because as we've seen, new new cases of anti-Semitism continue to plague the U.S. and countries all over the world. Right. And this is something that Pope Francis has been particularly attentive to. Um, he's visited uh, Auschwitz. Yeah, back in 2016, he went and prayed and reflected there. Yeah. Um, and this week, Uh, So it will have already happened by the time you've heard this. Uh, The Vatican is going to be represented at the Fifth World Holocaust Forum at Yad Vashem in Jerusalem. Right. So they're having a commemoration there um, and other world leaders are going to attend, including Mike Pence, the vice president. Um, And after going to Israel, he is going to head over to the Vatican to visit Pope Francis. So not sure what they're going to talk about. Probably Vice President Pence's visit to Jerusalem will come up, um, Mm -hmm. but we will keep you posted on that. What's our next story, Ashley? So from... Mike Pence to his boss, President Trump, who at an event at the Oval Office on National Religious Freedom Day uh, announced new guidance for prayer in public schools. Yeah, so these new rules require that state education departments report cases in which students have been denied the right to pray and provide clear processes for students and teachers to file complaints about 
being denied the right to pray. Right. So he's not really changing the rules about when students can and cannot pray, but he's making it easier to report um, and creating a level of accountability at the state level for schools that are violating students' right in this regard. Yeah. And there's sort of a proactive element to this because universities that receive federal funding have to certify once a year that they don't have any policies that prevent students from exercising their constitutional right to pray. Right. And some of those students were at the White House for this event. There was Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, and evangelical students represented, including the the Catholic student. I don't know if you remember this story. He was um, he went to school in Utah yes. and he went to school with his ashes on on Ash Wednesday, and everyone thought it was just dirt, and he was told to wipe it off by because, a teacher, yeah. right? Yeah. So, yeah, not that was not that <laughs> no. didn't age well immediately after, and it hasn't aged well since. No, yeah. Um, this is sort of prayer in public school has been a hotly contested topic since the '60s. Um, this is sort of settled by the Supreme Court. Right. Like you said, that President Trump isn't changing any of the rules. He's just changing the reporting. Um, but it is definitely established law that school-sponsored prayer violates the First Amendment. Right. But student-led prayer has to be allowed. Right. And I was, I was curious about your experience of this because I went, I went to a public school in Arlington. Um, wasn't a particularly religious group. I don't really remember prayer taking place at school at all. Any prayer at all. I Yeah, I don't think so. The only like thing tangentially related, I remember one teacher got in trouble for like trying to teach the Bible as literature and that was seen as like crossing the line. But yeah, no, like at sporting events or I never really had that experience. We, I had I don't know if it's the opposite, but there was yeah. definitely and it was almost always student led mm-hmm. uh prayer. Um but basically before every game there was someone leading the group and an our father. It was always very Christian prayer mm-hmm. too. Uh Yeah. And, and how did you did you like that? Did you think it added something to your school experience? Um I I don't know if I reflected critically on it at the time. Mm-hmm. Um it just sort of it's just something you sort of go with the flow on. Yeah. Um it feels very ingrained as part of the culture. Um yeah. I can see how it would be very difficult to opt out of right. if you did not share that professed belief in Christianity. Um Yeah. I had a roommate in college who she she was Jewish or is Jewish, um, and she grew up outside of Atlanta at a pub and went to a public school where it was just like in the air all the time. And I remember her telling me that you know she felt pretty uncomfortable and like it was something that she couldn't participate in and was like kind of looked down on for not participating in. Um, yeah, it's so, a tough line to walk yeah. um, for sure. Um, all all the experiences I had were in public school. I didn't go to Catholic school until mm-hmm. college. Um, we can all agree that students should be able to lead their own yeah. prayer in whatever denomination or way they want. But, I mean, it's maybe we can only speak to the Catholic experience here. That At least maybe Catholic students should be mindful of, like, the people in who are maybe out on the peripheries who don't necessarily feel included or maybe feel marginalized by experiences like this. Yeah. But speaking of interdenominational prayer happening in contested spaces. Uh, What's (laughs) our next story, Ashley? Uh, So a church in the Diocese of Richmond uh, will no longer be holding a um, consecration for a female Episcopalian bishop. Um, This church in Williamsburg, Virginia, St. Bede's Parish, had originally invited the Episcopal Diocese of Southern Virginia to use their space uh, for this consecration of the bishop. And this is, it was basically because... They had more space than yes, the Episcopalian they had a, Church, right? They, could, they have like a thousand seat capacity and the um, largest Episcopalian church could only fit a couple hundred people and their closest cathedral is, you know, six or seven hours away in Washington, D.C. So it was, a, it was an act of generosity and hospitality on the part of the Catholic Church. 
This news had led to a an online petition um, that had garnered uh, a couple thousand signatures, sort of objecting to a Catholic space being used for an Episcopalian consecration. Right. And like so many of these stories, it could have just remained an obscure online petition, but it was covered by the Catholic press and then became a national news story, yep. leading the bishop of um, Richmond, Bishop Barry Nestout, to have to defend the the parish. Right. He defended it as an act of hospitality to a Christian neighbor in need um, and an act of charity and well within the teachings of ecumenism and the norms provided by the church. Yes, but that was not enough. <laughs> no, the, so... the Catholic media outrage machine was in motion. Yeah. So two days after Catholic News Agency had reported on the controversy, um, the Episcopalian bishop-elect, Susan Haynes, uh, told Bishop Nestout that they had decided to find a new location out of not wanting to create any type of controversy. Right. And I think it's in, we can only speculate in this regard, but I think the fact that she was a female bishop was a big part of the story because they had agreed to share this space um, back in 2018 and there was no uproar then. It was only after it was announced that it would be a female bishop it seems that this um, became a controversy. Yeah, and it's, again, unfortunate because, as Bishop Nestout pointed out, this is well within the norms and it's acceptable practice for church teaching, mm-hmm. right? Typically, like, churches are supposed to be reserved for sacred events of a Catholic nature. However, there are provisions that allow for, um, and Bishop Nestout recommended this sort of removing the uh, the Blessed Sacrament temporarily and allowing uh, the space to be used for something else. Right. And Bishop-elect Susan Haynes um, has been very gracious throughout this. She, you know, she could have gone forward with it. The the Catholic Church was standing by its decision, but she was worried about causing division. um, And so she made the decision to to hold it elsewhere. Um, So I found that um, heartening, but found you know, the you meaning her willingness to not try and cause division. Right. Hurting. Yeah. And and both her and Bishop Nestout has have talked about the very close um, ecumenical relationships that they have in this part of Virginia. Um, and so maintaining those is really important. And and both have said that they hope to continue working together fruitfully going forward. Um, but I find it disheartening that, you know, a kind of, you know, just like a, a news story could could bring down what would have been a otherwise nice but not yeah it's it's sad it's in a certain sense the story became the story and yeah. because of that i and it just like feels like a bummer i don't know i was really saddened by this right mm-hmm. it was seemed like a nice thing to do you have space to open it up to someone who needs it but um i don't know the things we're afraid of the things we don't know cause us to object and fear yeah. more <laughs> Joining us via Skype is Pete Lucier. He's a Marine veteran and a first-year law student at St. Louis University. He deployed to Afghanistan in 2011, and he has written about faith and service for the New York Times, Washington Post, U.S. Catholic, and American Magazine. Yeah, the favorite one on that list, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to Jesuitical, Pete. Hey, thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, first question, maybe we could just start by kind of grounding. Uh, I'm curious, like, why did you join the military? Why were you first attracted to it? Yeah, that's a great question. There's there's different answers depending on kind of who I'm talking to. There's different stories I tell. Um, there is a family tradition of service. So there was that. Um, also, I, I went to a Jesuit high school, but I, I wanted um, kind of selfishly um, something different, some kind of sense of adventure. Um, 
and then also like I grew up in in during the years after September 11th and I saw that war on a television every day and I think that like kind of formed and shaped me and I wanted to interact with it in a in a more personal way if that makes sense so all of those things kind of coalesced and I was 18 years old and I um, walked into a recruiter's office and uh, he kind of took it from there and how long were you deployed to Afghanistan and what what was your role there so I was there for seven months so um 2011 to kind of early 2012. Um, I was an infantry rifleman in the Marine Corps. Um, so I was kind of the, the basic building block unit um, out there doing patrols, kind of conducting counterinsurgency, yeah, interacting with the local populace and, and the occasional firefight. Were you practicing your faith at all while you were there? Um, and is it easy to practice your faith in a war zone? It's not easy to receive sacraments. Um, we were pretty remote. My spiritual journey through my time in the Marine Corps is its own story and its own tale. I was pretty fervent at the time, but in a very different way that I think I am now. I um, conflated my military service with what it meant to to be Catholic. And I embraced as a young man kind of this idea of like being like a, a warrior for the faith and had all kinds of um, notions about what I was doing, that it was, that it was good, that it was just. I did... Um, you know, kind of like pray a lot and had these ideas of like good and evil and definitely had opinions about which side I thought I was on in that particular war. Mm. And what, what challenged those notions? Um, coming home, getting back from Afghanistan was um, really difficult. Uh, I felt like I'd had these big almost like apocalyptic eschatological expectations, probably a lot like in the biblical story, like what what do people expect from their um, Messiah? They expected a king. They expected kind of a big, a warrior, um, something that would be kind of world altering. And what they got was, you know, this like kind of very humble um, person who was ultimately like put to death by the state. I think I expected um, war to be this kind of big life-changing experience and I, I expected to feel like vindicated and, and righteous and holy coming out of all those things and going through that experience and then coming home it was none of those things you see an incredible human cost you see incredible kind of like human suffering and pain um, and terrible confusion in a war that had already been going on for a decade um, and there was no clarity there was no kind of like righteousness and so coming home all those ideas that I had had about what faith was and who God was um, and who I was supposed to be were kind of torn apart. And I just stopped practicing and, and kind of left my faith for a pretty solid chunk of time. You've written about how, I guess, maybe you didn't, you kind of had your expectations dashed, but the way other people saw you when you returned was as some sort of a priest-like figure. Um, so what did you mean by that? So one of the things I talked about in my writing is I had this experience where I expected war to be this wisdom granting experience. I thought I would come out the other side of this crucible kind of purified and knowing more than when I went in, there would be some kind of wisdom granting in the experience. Um, and like I said, it was, it was the opposite of that. But for people who hadn't been through that experience, for people back home who I encountered, whether it was my family or my friends, well-meaning um, people, they expected me to be changed or marked. I, I could feel this pressure that people thought that I had this knowledge that I didn't. 
when in kind of like hushed tones, they would ask me about the war and what it was like, um, or if I thought something was patriotic or wasn't, you know, what do I think about what's going on in the NFL or what do I think about what the right way to celebrate the 4th of July is, you know, as if I, as if these experiences, these American experiences were sacramental. And if I was somehow like, I now had knowledge about how to conduct those rituals the right way um, because I had been to war. And so I felt, you know, I couched it in terms of what I had grown up with. Like I felt like people with the best of intentions viewed me as this kind of like priest, as this wise person, as this conductor of ritual and ceremony who had divine received wisdom. And that was particularly difficult because of, I had never felt like I had less wisdom or less clarity. So there's this great kind of clash between what people expect from veterans coming home and in the lived experience. It sounds a little bit like when Socrates says the wise man is the one who doesn't, who knows he's not, right? But is it that people who aren't veterans or ask veterans these types of questions sort of um, aren't engaging with their own responsibility enough? Would you expect like us to, even without this knowledge, sort of come to terms with our own opinions? Yeah, I mean, well, I think that you have as much of a a right or an entitlement to, you know, we're all kind of in this grand experiment together and I don't get to participate in it more fully or my vote doesn't count more because of my military service. Your thoughts on war, your thoughts on when we should and shouldn't go to war and how we ought to conduct ourselves in that war are just as valid as mine. And that sounds kind of radical. That sounds revolutionary. Like, and people are, are reluctant to engage it in that way. But I would encourage um, Americans who haven't served to think about those questions. How do I feel about American foreign policy? How do I feel about American military policy? Um, just because you haven't served doesn't mean you don't get to engage in those conversations. I think that's part of what this whole American thing means is just because you didn't serve doesn't mean your voice matters less. Yeah. You talk about it, speaking of people's opinions on war. Um, you've written about how when people ask you about your experience, they're sort of looking for <laughs> confirmation of what they already think, right? Like there's something behind a question. So if I say like, "Oh, Pete, what what's happening in the NFL? Isn't it terrible?" Right? Yeah, absolutely. You definitely get a sense for for what people want to hear. So when someone says, "Oh, yeah, like isn't isn't what's happening in the NFL?" terrible or like, you know, what was the war like? And what they want to hear is, um, you know, those people over there, oh, they're barely evolved. It's, you know, savagery. We're over there defending ideals or a certain kind of like Western value. And they want to hear that. Or on the flip side, someone who wants to hear that, you know, they're just like us and everybody should just get along. And it's just the rich and the powerful who want us to be in conflict, whatever people want to hear, give them that, but with a kind of a twist at the end, like folks a lot of the time uh, have very kind of preconceived notions and and, um, they've already arrived at their opinion of what they think about American military policy and American foreign policy. And a lot of times you can tell that they're looking for a veteran to confirm that for them Um, because if if they can have it confirmed by a veteran, if a veteran agrees with them, they'll feel more empowered and they'll feel more kind of correct in what they say. Well, oh, you know, I have my buddy Pete, he told me what, he knows what it's like over there, and I heard from him. Yeah, you know, it's it's so messed up, and ex president really, really messed up. My buddy Pete, he was in the Marines, he was over there, he saw it, and he said, you know, this is all whoever's fault. Yeah, 
Yeah. I wanted to switch to some more current events. Um, so recently the Afghanistan papers came out. Um, and after that, you wrote in the Washington Post about, you said, the inability of top officials to tell the truth made it harder for me to come home from war. So I'm wondering if you could just kind of talk about how you grappled with those revelations um, and, you know, how they maybe challenged why you thought you had gone to Afghanistan and why we were actually there. The idea that we're not making progress in Afghanistan, which I think is is the biggest takeaway. What the Afghanistan papers were were uh, uh, these retroactive interviews with folks who were looking to glean lessons learned. And one of the things they said over and over and over again was that we weren't making progress. Things weren't getting better. And intuitively, I think almost anyone who had deployed there or spent time there as um, a military service member or as a government contractor or as a civilian kind of knew that that was the case. Um, by any metric, like life was not getting better. Um, Af the Afghanistan government was not kind of controlling more territory or becoming less corrupt. Um, uh, more rights weren't flowing, more services weren't flowing, nothing was, was getting better in Afghanistan. And yet, from pulpits of the Pentagon and, and from the White House, year after year, generals and top policymakers would say, you know, we're turning a corner. The Afghan military is, is more ready to stand up on its own. Um, the old joke was again and again and again, like, we're turning a corner, we're turning a corner, we're turning a corner. If you turn a corner enough times, you're going in a circle. Yeah, you just go around. You just keep going around. So here in, in the Afghanistan papers was kind of, in the plainest terms, people kind of speaking truthfully for the first time. The reason I said it, it made it hard to come home was because how do you explain to your friends and your family that what's being told to them on the news and, and by their government, maybe it's not a lie, but isn't the whole truth isn't um, isn't an accurate representation of what you experienced. And it, it's enough to make anyone kind of apathetic. So when the papers came out, did you feel anger, relief, uh, validation? Yeah, anger at first. It was it's so frustrating to kind of be told half truths for so long. And then this sudden flood, this deluge of information that lays out so clearly and so cleanly the lack of progress and kind of the truth that you knew all the whole time. Um, so there's that initial wave of anger, like why why didn't ever anyone have the courage to say this kind of publicly? Why was it hidden away in um, special inspector reports and special inspector interviews? Like why didn't someone speak out and say this? It, it needed to be said long ago. Um, and then after that initial wave of anger, it's just a resigned sadness so much loss kind of on both sides. Uh, it's just the incredible human cost of that particular war and um, makes you really question like what exactly was the point of all that? Like what was the point of, you know, my friends who fought and were wounded and who died and the people of Afghanistan who are, you know, to this day, like living in a war zone in, in contested territories. Um, like what's the, the point of that ongoing war? Like why? And, and how do you even begin to stop it when everyone kind of knew what was going on and no one could even, uh, you know, publicly speak kind of very basic truths about it? Without those, like, fundamental facts, how can you even begin to start negotiating and withdrawing? Yeah. Did you have um, similar feelings after the 
the strike on uh, the Iranian general um, Qasem Soleimani and the kind of rhetoric that was coming from the administration after that? I think the most frustrating part of the rhetoric around the Soleimani killing was how triumphant it was. This kind of like schoolyard tough talk about how great it was. Uh, you know, after 19 years in Afghanistan and, um, you know, coming up on 17 years in Iraq, this like kind of righteousness, I know, Pete Hegseth talked about, you know, President Trump bringing the fire. Yeah, there's a there's a problem with the way that we that we talk about war. And um, I think there is an obligation to be um, a truthful witness to to what war looks like. So um, I don't know if it was the right time to kill Suleimani or not. I don't know if there is a right time to kill anybody, but I can tell you what it's like. I you know I can tell you what it's like when a car is blown up, um, and try and make that reality real and visceral for people who are kind of very far removed from that battle space. Yeah. So that that's your role as a veteran. How do you how do you see your role as a Catholic or or Catholics more widely? What is our responsibility when a, when our country is making these decisions about war and peace? I, I come to my Catholicism through you know, the, the image of the cross, which is a person, you know, when I look at that, I, what I see is a victim of violence, of really, really horrific, you know, state violence. An Episcopal priest friend of mine, when I first started coming back to my faith, I was describing him like the difficulty of where my faith had been before and, and where it was now. And how I was having a really hard time, you know, kind of praying again and, and thinking about God again. And he said, well, of course you have a messed up relationship with faith. Um, you've worshipped kind of violence for, you know, the last, you know, five, ten years of your life. Was that tough to hear? That feels, that feels very strong. <laughs> yeah. And it was, but it was revelatory because once I kind of accepted that framing for, on a personal level, how I had conducted myself for those five years um, things made a lot of sense. I had, in a sense, turned violence into this kind of God. When you expect violence to save you, when you expect going to war and killing people to grant you wisdom, you're you're worshiping a violent way of life. You're turning killing into a kind of God for yourself, right? You're trying to cut off, in the most literal way possible, connection with other human beings. You're trying to, you know, kill people and be really good at killing. Um, and being the best at this this thing called war, which is what it's like to be an infantryman in the United States Marine Corps. You want to be really, really good at this thing. You know, every day you wake up and you you run that PT hoping that, like, you know, if I ever have to run towards the enemy in combat, like, that's what it's going to be about. And if I wanted to be Catholic again, if I wanted to be Christian again, if I wanted to believe in God, I had to look at a God who connects people who so wanted to, like, connect with humanity that he became incarnate and walked around with us and when the time came you know he would rather be arrested and and killed um, than like raise a hand to somebody else from that beautiful passage in, in Matthew so the long and short of that is where Catholics like see war and escalation and tension building like currently is happening between um, the United States and Iran right now I think it's our obligation in every possible way that we can to speak out against it to de-escalate that to stop what's going on from ramping up into um, a full-blown war. Um, it's our obligation to say no to war, to find other ways of connecting with people um, and finding other ways as a country to connect with other countries, you know, state to state. Yeah. 
a good place to to end. Thank yeah. thanks so much, Pete, for being willing to talk about all these things and with us. Yeah. No. Thanks, guys. We do well, have we have one more question one more question you. that we we ask yeah. all of our guests. Um, if you if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or not, who would it be and why? Oh, what a great question. Mm-hmm. Um, Yadier Molina of the St. Louis Cardinals. <laughs> okay. Tell us why. Uh, I'm from St. Louis. Uh, that guy's been here forever. He belongs in the Hall of Fame. So if he can't get there, at least he can be in the communion of saints. <laughs> oh, that's just such a classic. Uh, yeah, there's, I should have such a better answer than that. But that's, that, was my go- that was my go-to St. Did Louis. He, did he have uh, a strong faith life? that you know of <laughs> you might i don't know that's a really great question <laughs> all right oh let me think of let me think of a better answer than that real quick i was feeling that's, good about yadi yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna stick with yadi, yadi. <laughs> i just want to buy him a, a ticket yeah okay all right, all right. Well, Saint, 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 yadi. Saint yadi and melina uh pete thanks again where can people find your work um check out my uh piece in america magazine i think it came out in may and it is called as a soldier i was loved for my sins now i must repent for them um, it's my latest big long piece. Um, it's about penance and um, the road home and how Catholicism can be the way for a veteran coming home from war to reconnect with their life, their faith, and their community. Awesome. Great well, piece. thanks so much again. And uh, we will link our listeners to that. Thanks. All right. All right. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, guys. Are you curious what the idea of co-responsibility for the church's being and acting might mean for both the lady and ordained? Join us for an academic and pastoral conference at Notre Dame this March, March 4 to 6, to explore this idea further. For more details and a complete list of speakers, visit mcgrath.nd.edu slash co-responsible, all one word. All right, now it's time for some housekeeping. Uh, if you're listening to this on Friday, you might be at the March for Life in Washington, D.C., or know someone who is there. We've got some colleagues down. Yeah, so uh, Vivian Cabrera and Kevin Jackson from America mm-hmm. will be representing us at the march. Um, be sure to follow them on Instagram. If you don't yes. follow America's Instagram, yeah. at America Media, check it out. But they'll be posting some live updates from the march and their activities there all weekend. Yes, so look out for people in cool America media caps <laughs> yeah they've got some new beanies that are nice america it reminded me of our of our we could have used those when we went down to cover the march for life yeah ashley and i went uh what was it four years three or four years ago yeah. um in a blizzard yeah um, a literal blizzard so you can find that in the deep cuts of america's youtube oh, yeah. archives um all right all right now it's time for consolations and desolations the part of our show where we talk about where we found god this week and where it was harder to find god what do you have zach I have a desolation this week. Um, I just, like, couldn't bring myself to get up and go to Mass this weekend. <gasps> like, 11.15 mm. came, and I was like, oh, hit the noon nearby. Noon yeah. went past. Oh, hit the six. six. And I just, like, s- talked myself yep. into going to the later <laughs> Mass until it was Monday. Yeah. Um, and I was trying to figure out why, and it came up in discussion that I think that I'm trying to— there's just, like, a lot of— feelings that I'm trying to avoid right now, I think. There's like one, there's like a big thing in my personal life going on that 
I have a lot of feelings about that are sort of like difficult to unpack. And I knew that mass is a place where I would likely be invited to unpack those. Um, And so really found myself. I thought maybe it was sort of laziness, but really avoidance is probably the better Mm -hmm. spiritual diagnosis. Um, And it's desolating because I'm listening to this voice of the evil spirit that says, oh, if you unpack that there, God's not going to know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. And then you're not going to know what to do with it. And it's just going to be too much. Yeah. Um, and I shouldn't listen to that. Um, I've, you know, got to sort of probe that some more. But yeah. that's the desolation from this weekend. Yeah. It's like me avoiding going to the doctor. I just, I don't yep. want to know. <laughs> Keep right. it in the box. Yep. Keep, Keep it, it in, in the box. box. <laughs> it can't get worse, right? Yeah. Uh, no, not good advice. Yeah. Anyway, Ashley, what do you got this week? Um, I have a consolation. Uh, so this past weekend, I was down in D.C. Uh, for my friend John Hatch, who I mentioned uh, back in December. He passed away very suddenly. Um and so there was a memorial service for him um, back at his old school in D.C. It was an Episcopalian church, and the pastor opened it up, um, kind of like setting the tone as he wanted us, this event, and going forward to be like writing the gospel of John Hatch um, and spreading the good news that was his life. Um, and it was just like a really powerful way to frame it, and then we just kind of did that for the next 10 hours at at the service and then at a reception afterwards and then at a bar I was just talking to like a lot of his friends um some that I knew and some that I was just meeting and sharing stories about John and kind of keeping him alive by doing that uh and I don't know I was just so struck by like everyone had the like very different stories but all coming down to the fact that like John was this person who was like just unafraid to be himself and made people feel like they could be themselves around him. And so, yeah, just having the space and time to, to talk about, to talk about John um, and meet the people who shaped him and whose lives he's, he's shaped um, was really, really consoling. Sounds really powerful too. Yeah. Yeah. The ability to remember with the community. Mm -hmm. And in a, Episcopalian church, yeah, nonetheless. nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Want to get us out of here? I will. Judge Whitical is produced by Colleen Dully. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Faith formation provided by Father Eric Sundrup. Production help from Izzy Seneschal and Tucker Redding. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash groups slash Jesuitical. Please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite podcasts and leave us a review. Jesuitical is recorded in the William J. Loeschert Studio at America Media in New York City. For America Media, I'm Ashley McKinless with Zach Davis. We'll see you next week.